You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to your beacon of truth here at the conservative conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz of Conservative Review, now powered by Blaze Media. Um, you know, those of you who didn't see me yesterday, I was on Glenn Beck's show for the first time. Uh, so at least there is that part of the merger where our voice is spreading to other platforms. And that is all we can do. All we can do here is speak the truth, shout it from the rooftops, spread it to whoever is willing to hear it, and let the chips fall where they where they may. There, There is nothing more we can do. I stand where I am, and I could stand no longer. Um, it's late at night here. It's actually still Monday night for me. You're going to hear this later. But frankly, this week I'm finding I can only record at night just simply because of the fact that the days are so packed with insanity that I just don't have time to break away. But I wanted to give you guys a quick update. You know, we spent the opening show of the week talking about the Obamacare ruling, and that was more thematic. That was very philosophical on the judiciary. I wanted to get back to the rapid fire politics of what's going on. You know, th- this is a time, and I'm really tired, but. Um, just indulge me here. It almost feels like election night. I'm just so tired from from fighting, just emotionally exhausted. You know, this is a four-year fight over jailbreak. And, you know, this week would have been the perfect time to have a united front where we have the worst criminal alien crisis imaginable. We have a drug crisis. We have a border crisis that's bad for everyone. It needs to be addressed, and we should have a movement fully behind the president of all times. The president's willing to fight, at least on some level, and there's not much of a movement. The entirety of this phony conservative movement is focused on the Al Sharpton jailbreak, disgusting Willie Horton movement that is the most vile thing for the pits of the left. And in fact, I'm going to show you today why this phony movement needs to be euthanized, why we need to build something new from the ashes, and why just just because it is difficult to hear this, it doesn't mean we should shy away from saying it. And just because we don't have a readily available solution to harness at this point, it doesn't mean we should close our eyes to the reality that's in front of us. A lot of this is inspired from a very long conversation I just had with my buddy Chip Roy. Like, we're both kind of saying, like, what what the heck are we even doing here? Basically, groups like the Heritage Foundation and Americans for Prosperity and all these groups, I'm here to tell you that they are further to the left on the issue of crime than Cory Booker. Okay, bear with me here. 
I, I'm almost at a loss of words. I mean, there's nothing that happened today that I didn't know. But it's just when you actually see it and you see everything you ever understood in politics come to the nightmare scenario. It just gives you pause to w- what you're doing here. But again, what we're doing is speaking the truth. And I'm still thankful to be able to speak whatever comes to my mind. And you know, I don't just impetuously speak whatever comes to my mind. I've spent hours upon hours. Part of why I'm so tired is not just the emotional exhaustion from fighting these political battles with so many people who should be on our side, like Ted Cruz. But um, beyond that, just all the research I've been doing on so many issues to try to give you the best data and the best information that so few people in this phony movement are doing. So as it stands, and this can be fluid, throughout Tuesday you're going to have debate, and then you're going to have amendment votes, and then you're going to have the final vote. But late Monday, they held the cloture vote, the procedural motion to proceed. Now, it doesn't indicate you know, who's there. I mean, anyone who voted against cloture shows that they're dead set against this. Everyone else is kind of up for up for grabs, but it don't look good. Doesn't look good. So the 11 Republicans who voted no are Burr, Cotton, Enzi, Kyle, Sass, Rish, Kennedy, Barrasso, Sullivan, Toomey, Rounds, and Murkowski. Kind of an eclectic group there. Now, again, there's about 10 more that kind of oppose this. There's really 15 to 20 more that really don't like it. Certainly Ted Cruz is was, I mean, you had the video between him and Candace Owens screaming at each other. He opposed this just a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's only gotten worse. But it's all political. And what's so sad is that we never even have, there's one thing if we had 11 guys that are always with us. But we don't. Each time, okay, these guys are, are standing strong. Now it's even Murkowski, of all people, thinks this is stupid. But then 10 other times, they're screwing us. Rubio wasn't on the list, but he's really against it. So he'll be ironically to the right of Cruz, Lee, and Paul here, but you know, to the left on other things. You know, I mean, it's we don't have a critical mass on anything. We don't know what it means to be a conservative anymore. How far how far we've fallen. It's just so sad. So anyway, the order of operations was, was as follows that. Basically, they're going to vote on three Cotton Kennedy amendments. The only two guys actually, you know, openly putting their name against this movement. It's literally the entire country, the entire political class against me, handful of other people, Kennedy, Cotton, Cotton being the most prominent. Ten million dollars has been spent in media campaigns. For this, zero dollars has been have been spent in opposition. You know, the sheriffs, the prosecutors, they don't have a political action committee. This is the swampiest of swampy things that you will ever find. Facts don't matter. We've already crossed that Rubicon. But I want to show you how we've gone to a level beyond this, along with just making my closing argument on jailbreak, which in itself is somewhat of a closing argument for euthanizing this phony movement that's already, frankly, dead. 
It's the hard stone cold truth. So Tom Cotton proposed three amendments. Now, if you remember, just to show how naive I was in not realizing how evil and satanic these supporters on the Republican side, on the so-called conservative side, including an organization I worked for in the past, are on board with this. So when I first heard of Cotton's amendments, I was like, oh, so you're giving up. You're assuming this is passing, and you're just trying to tweak around the edges rather than fundamentally expose the foundation of this bill. And you know, my friend in Cotton's office said, no, 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 you don't understand. We're, um, we're still fighting full force. We're going to expose this. But I was like, I said, what do you mean? Isn't everyone just going to vote for these little fixes that you have and then say, kumbaya, we fixed the bill, but 95% of the problems still persist and the entire philosophy behind it. And we didn't even delve into so many provisions that are pernicious that, frankly, I didn't even get a chance to write about. Um, what do you mean? And he said, no, I don't think you understand. These guys are going to sit and openly support letting out sex offenders. So let's start from the beginning. Cotton has three amendments, and they will be debated on. They might be voted on late tomorrow night or Wednesday morning. So late Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, for those of you who hear the show at various times. Um, and shortly afterwards will, will be the final vote. Democrats are are give, are seating back all of their debate time because they're just allowing Republicans to do it for them. Remember, every single Democrat so far voted for cloture. And as it stands now, now there's going to be a caveat. Every Democrat supports this bill. Every single one. Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, Dick Durbin, all the vermin that were on that Senate Judiciary Committee that accused Kavanaugh without due process of being a rapist. These Republicans and conservative organizations rewarded their behavior on criminal justice by saying, let's pass your priorities to let out people that absolutely had due process and were convicted of being gang members and drug traffickers, killing our people, many of them either foreign nationals or connected to transnational cartels. This degree of Orwellian perfidy is beyond any anything Orwell could have written. It's beyond anything I could have imagined. But anyway, his amendments. So, number one, it was merely to expand the exceptions to early release. Didn't deal with the safety valve. Didn't deal with um, all the provisions on all the unworkable provisions of the administrative burden on DOJ. It didn't flip the, um, the order of the bill. In other words, like a real reform of the bill would have affirmatively stated the leniencies rather than stating the exceptions, right? That's the real way you would do it. As I've mentioned a number of times, they couldn't do that because if they just targeted leniencies to low-level people, well, people would discover that it applies to three people out of 180,000 federal prison. So therefore, they had to obfuscate this. Okay? So anyway, his amendment merely expanded exceptions to 1,500, roughly 1,500 sex offenders that are still eligible 
under this bill. Remember, remember, there were thousands more that originally were, and we had to pull teeth from them to get them to revise the bill. Um, a number of robbers, carjackings, assaults, and then 25,000 more of the residual aggravated felony crime of violence. So that's all it is. That's all it is. Those people. And then everyone else. According to the U.S. Sentencing Commission email to Senator Cotton's office, even after the Cotton Amendment, 68% of the federal prison population, think about it, 68% of the 10% of the worst incarcerated people in America. Federal population is only about 10% of the incarcerated population. Generally speaking, you have some quirky federal crimes, but generally speaking, especially drug trafficking, assault, these type of things, these are the worst of the worst that they target. 68% even after the Cotton Amendment would still be eligible. Amendment number two was simply that DOJ would have to inform any victim of a particular criminal convict that they're going to be let out before they are let out and I guess afford them an opportunity to maybe speak to the warden or issue some sort of a statement. Not that they have veto power over, but just that they have to, that they get to issue some sort of statement. Amendment number three simply studied recidivism. In other words, you want to say that, oh, these programs are amazing. And what we told you is they're they're ill-defined, they're not defined, there's nothing more they have to do that they're not already doing. They get the jailbreak for free. And there's no benchmarks. There's no monitoring of their behavior. Well, you have to show this or demonstrate this, demonstrate some sort of success. So all this does is require regular reports that that DOJ has to notify, I guess, Congress every time someone is rearrested. Who, someone who has been let out early is rearrested. Now, if you think about this, a report, merely having victims just be notified, just expanding the exceptions to the blatantly violent people. Remember, most of those in there are drug, on drug trafficking are inherently violent, and they could have a history of even murder. A lot of them do in the state system or they were originally charged with murder in the federal system and pled down. They are all eligible even after the Cotton Amendment. These are just specifically the categories that were convicted and actually serving this go-around in federal prison. Right now, on violent crime and sex offenses are excluded under the Cotton Amendment as opposed to the current revised bill. So you would think hey, this is kind of a cop-out. Like, you know, yeah, this is a freebie, and they'll pass it. And then now, you know, we won't have an excuse to oppose it anymore, even though it's still 95% bad. And kumbaya, and they're going to pass it. Incomes today, and, and, you know, it was a question, like, maybe even Democrats. I mean, why wouldn't Democrats vote for it? I mean, like, who wouldn't vote for that? Incomes today, a group called Conservatives for Justice Reform that pens a letter opposing all three amendments. Who signed the letter? The American Conservative Union, FreedomWorks, Right on Crime, Freedom Partners, Texas Public Policy Foundation, Americans for Prosperity, R Street, Faith and Freedom Coalition, Americans for Tax Reform, and Heritage Action for America. Full disclosure, I did some 
work for them in the past when Mike Needham and Russ Vote ran the show there. And it was a very different organization. They actually pushed back, moved to the right of the C3, the main heritage foundation. Now it's just an empty vessel. It's become an empty vessel. I have so many friends that are alumnuses and it's, it's, it, it rips them apart. The organization that they built from scratch that was supposed to be that organization that we always talk about that's needed. And they kind of started to do that in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014. Again, it was around the Trump era that it kind of went to hell in a handbasket. And now it's just gone. They send out a letter, and here's how I'm going to show you how they are to the left of Democrats on this issue in some way. I'm going to post the letter. The letter in itself exposes them as buck naked. In case some of you didn't believe me, they were like, eh, maybe there's some disagreement in the margins, and maybe there are you know, certain categories of crime we disagree with. You will see these people fundamentally do not believe in incarceration and deterrent. They have fundamentally adopted every bit of the Soros agenda on this issue. They are every bit as radical as Al Sharpton, Van Jones, and George Soros on this issue. And won't won't give an inch. And the politics behind this is unbelievable. So let's get to what they say. The first Cotton Kennedy Amendment would exclude from earned time credits anyone convicted of any offenses in which the elements or facts of the offense involved a substantial risk of physical force against the person or property. The exemptions would make virtually all federal prisoners ineligible for time credits, with the exception of low-level drug offenders and white-collar criminals. See, originally that was their whole selling point. Now they're like, how dare they only do this for low-level offenders? The Supreme Court has found this exact language to be unconstitutionally vague in two opinions, Sessions v. DeMaia and Johnson v. United States. So this is another thing. You remember we talk about these court decisions where they now – we need criminal justice reform the other way. The courts have basically said that tons of people, burglars and everything, are now – If they're criminal aliens, they're not getting deported. A bunch of sex offenders are not being deported. They're being they're granted reprieve. And a bunch of career criminals are escaping the Armed Career Criminal Act because of those two court decisions. Even Lindsey Graham and Orrin Hatch are sponsors of Cotton's bill. This is a separate bill to um, fix these opinions and just blatantly write in statute what a crime of violence is. And these people actually they agree with it. So you see what I mean? The remember what I told you, uh, Daniel. Uh, I understand what you're saying, but but you know there's some violent people, violent offenders, the the nonviolent first time offenders that serving fifty years in the jail. These retarded schmucks, as I told you, they believe in it for violent offenders and repeat offenders, and now they admit it. They're like, "How dare you? Only do it for nonviolent offenders." These people are exposed buck naked. This is your conservative movement for you folks. Next, the amendment is antithetical to the heart of the bill. 
they're actually right, I guess. It would deny incentives for rehabilitative programming to the offenders in most need of it. <laughs> See, now they're saying the opposite. It's the worst offenders that are out. And in doing so, the amendment would maintain the status quo in our prisons, thereby continuing to put communities at risk. So if you don't let go the violent offenders and the sex <laughs> offenders, then you're putting communities at risk. <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. Peace is war and war is peace. Folks, <laughs> this is not Kamala Harris. This is heritage action of America. <laughs> okay. So there's there's that um there's that amendment. Um then there's the next uh the next amendment. The second Cotton Kennedy Amendment has two components. It would permit wardens to ignore evidence-based risk assessment tools and veto the use of earned time credits by lower minimum risk offenders. And B, it would require wardens to consider a victim impact statement in that calculation. Converting what should be an objective assessment into a subjective bureaucratic process governed by wardens leaves important public safety considerations open to emotion, human error, and potential bias. So forget about the emo- so emotion and bias on behalf of criminals. I mean, Mike Lee and all this, it's all emoting. That's okay. But if you have emotional bias on behalf of the victims, oh, that that that's a problem. They oppose victim impact statements. Bastard. My goal here is to not violate, you know, even though we're not regulated by the FCC, but it's to get through today's show without any of those words. Man, the Third Cotton Amendment would require the Bureau of Prisons to publicly report on the rearrest data of each prisoner. However, the metric contained in the Kennedy Amendment is flawed. Arrests are not a proxy for subsequent criminal conduct. Data collection should be based on whether ex-offenders have been convicted of new crimes after leaving custody of your Bureau of Prisons. Let, let's work backwards and start with the third one. Folks, there's a lot of depth and profundity into what they're saying. The way they measure recidivism versus the way we do sits at the nexus of what we believe is the problem. They believe incarceration is the problem. Therefore, they define recidivism by being reincarcerated. Meaning, and that's a, not that it's a bad thing that the guy did a crime. It's bad that we have to pay for more incarceration. We view recidivism as rearrests. Now, first of all, just so you know, this is the measure that has been used by every federal entity and almost almost every state entity until recently. A couple of them that are trying to promote jailbreak have used arrests. And the point is this. A lot of them are saying, Daniel, you're a fascist. You're assuming everyone arrested, you know, committed the crime. Don't we have due process like you idiots? Of course, that's to convict John Smith. We don't just say, oh, because a police arrested you, therefore we throw you in jail. We're not, no one's talking about on a micro sense, a specific conviction. We're talking about macro statistics in order to develop trends and data in order to um, assess public policy decisions. So, generally speaking, overwhelmingly, those who are arrested committed the crime. Okay, that is a fact. Now, of course, if even a half a percent are wrongly arrested, that's why we have trials. That's why you need due process. And of course, you're going to have that. 
but it's fair game to say as a political point, not a legal conviction, but a political talking point that if we see 70% of them are rearrested within five years, you got a problem there because it's safe to say that, again, we're not trying to convict anyone here, that most of them are reoffending. Why are they so scared to know who was rearrested? If they were wrongly rearrested, we'll know about that. Notice they're trying to stifle anything. They, they, they have no guts, no guts and glory. They don't want anything that will expose them. So they're mad about the sex offender amendment. They're mad about this report. They're mad about victim impact statements. They don't want anyone to speak. Coke and Soros could run their ads and everyone else shut up. These are the fascist pigs that comprise this phony, comatose, immoral, left-wing conservative movement, if you will. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, the First Amendment, unbelievably, Ironically, it doesn't deny any of their nerdy programming. It just says that if you're one of these people, you don't get early credits based on it. And by the way, all offenders are engaged in rehabilitative programming. That's another thing I want to talk to you guys about. Let let me repeat what I said on yesterday's show. Let me just repeat this for you guys. The punchline of this bill is it lets go, even with the Cotton Amendment, but certainly without it, 68 to 80% of the most violent population. And everyone admits 70% recidivate. And all these guys. And, you, and that means they will be doing crimes. And it's a stupid measure. They're like, here's their whole thing. It's circular logic. Well, they're going to get out anyway. Well, yeah, but it's a numbers game. The more you let out earlier, it compounds itself. And you're right. Really, they should be in there longer. But, you know, we do what we can. Isn't it better to rehabilitate them? Show me. How? There's nothing new about these programs. They've done them in the states, and they have worse recidivism than the federal system. This is Orwellian. But anyway, we're to believe that the existing programs that are run by Cornell University and others, that that the bill says DOJ must enter into contracts with them, that the very programs that they're already taking that say Marx is great, whites are horrible, Cops are horrible. Society failed you. That's all they're doing now, except now you get a third of your sentence lopped off for attending those lectures. That's how we're welling. Isn't it sad? You know, people at TPPF and Heritage Action, they should be able to sit at a table with me and we should all agree true conservative prison reform would be the recognition that there's this revolutionary cultural Marxism that has taken over the curriculum, and we should all agree to change that. Not only aren't they putting that in the bill, 
but they're codifying these very programs as the impetus to release them. And they're saying that that's a public safety concern. That's the, the panacea to recidivism, to public safety, is letting them out early through programs that revolutionize them. I'm going to read you an email from a man. His name is Joe. He was a warden in federal prison for decades, and he sent me the following email. As an officer working in one of the correctional facilities where Cornell University's prison education program was approved, my first experience with it was actually with inmates taking one of its courses, approaching me with their concerns regarding its racial element. Knowing from a security perspective, an officer, civilian staff, and inmate safety perspective of the reality of where and to what racial tensions can lead to in a prison environment, I was compelled to look into it. On the surface, it all seemed well and good to me, but when you as an officer have had multiple inmates, black and white, coming up to you and telling you something isn't right with the course to the point that they were dropping out of it, there's probably something to what they're trying to tell you. However, after reading through the curricula of a couple of his courses, and he named some, race, space and place, race and ethnicity, I began to understand the inmates' concerns about what they termed its ingrained race hustling as warranted. I also wondered how these courses were ever approved to be taught as legitimate education anywhere, let alone in a jail setting. As what I also learned is that these courses were very consistent with, as well as very similar in nature and content to, Something else I was also first introduced to by inmates in prison, radical anti-law enforcement, anti-American revolutionary anarchist collectivist doctrine, sentiment, and literature. Something not only present in our correctional facilities, but prevalent. And such is the originating source, by the way, of the now mainstream terminologies being thrown around out there to justify criminal justice and or prison reform, such as inherent or implicit bias, disparate impact, mass incarceration. How many realize that to accept them as valid is to accept the revolutionary premise that the system of America's founded must be wholly abolished and replaced with full-blown socialism as valid? <clears throat> Let me just cut in here. Remember, so it's a circuitous cycle. The very rent seekers that are paid money now to spread this poison and make the prisoners even worse are the ones that are now driving criminal justice reform. Oh, whoops. Now they call it prison reform. Notice how like global warming, climate change had changed awfully quickly. These very same people are driving it. And now they use their curriculum is now the litmus test for letting them go early. Talk about having your cake and eat it too. Yet Heritage Action for America, Cornell University, Orwell's Orwell. I I could go on and on from this email. Um, It's a very, very detailed email. Um, Very deep, detailed email. It is, it is unreal. You know, I'm just trying to pick out some um, quotes it has from there. And he has, it's very well footnoted too. I mean, a lot of this stuff is open source. But um, they teach them about abolishing prisons. 
Let me see where this is here. I'm going to, I'm going to link to it in show notes. Um, there's this radical nutcase woman from Cornell university. I'm going to read this to you. This is a former inmate talking. Auburn Correctional Facilities inmate Stephen Kuber has studied many subjects during his incarceration, but it was a political science course taught by Cornell government professor Mary Katzenstein that, quote, awakened something in me in inner drive. I ate it up, Kuber recalls, of the course he took with Katzenstein. The diversity of approaches she came up with each week, Machiavelli, Marx, social movements, the main focal point she kept our attention on was power. That kept my attention. At Bard College in um, Annadale on Hudson, New York, a liberal arts education is offered to inmates at the maximum security prison of Eastern Correctional Facility in New York. Through the passionate way one inmate speaks, it is evident that education has had a transforming effect on him. After taking a course in philosophy, he pushed for a German course to be offered with the hopes that he could read the original works of German philosophy. Ironically, the man who is so passionate about philosophers such as Karl Marx will also be spending 20 or to 40 years of his life behind bars for the fatal shooting of a woman as he committed a robbery. Yet with the help of the board of the Bard Prison Initiative, his time spent in prison aims to rehabilitate him by enhancing his life behind bars and hopefully creating a beneficial member of society upon his release. Folks, these are the programs that they are relying upon. Wow. It, it, it's worse than you think. It is worse than you think. This is the raw truth, and it hurts. Our people walk the ball in the end zone for the most radical drives of the other side. Think about that. Imagine having an agenda jailbreak. That's insane. Teaching Marxism and education system and racial supremacism and all the other sickening things they teach, right? That's pretty bad, right? Imagine putting it together that we now get to contract and give them money to give courses to dismantle our society and in return for them listening, the worst human beings among them get let out of jail. <sighs> we live in biblical times. It's God's judgment, but we got to speak the truth. I'm losing my voice here. <clears throat> and I've just been talking all day. I'm not sure where this is going to take me. But I want to give you somewhat of a closing argument and also tie into criminal alien statistics. I'm going to have a piece out tomorrow. As I mentioned yesterday, ICE just came out with a report. They made 158 1,581 administrative arrests, of which almost all of them were criminal aliens with a past criminal record. They cumulatively totaled between them 542,798 criminal convictions. That is astounding. 
every single crime by an alien, by definition, is a needless, senseless, avoidable crime. Because if we were doing the things, the 25 or so things that any sane country would do to protect our sovereignty, they would never be incentivized to come here. To the extent you have a few here or there, they'd be deported very quickly and, you know, the likelihood of them committing a crime, then you know, you'll have a few, but whatever. 542,798 crimes. Now, as I'm going to explain, this is a fraction of what the cr- crime is likely committed in a given year. And by the way, this is every single year. Okay? Let's go through some of the crimes. Now, most of these are convictions, but the, so they divide up um, charges and convictions. And again, when I'm not imputing a single individual and accusing them, I'm just doing macro statistics. So charges are very relevant because almost all of them are going to be true. So the numbers are going to be accurate to reflect the reality of crimes committed, especially with these type of people. Okay. <clears throat> 80,730 DUIs. 80,730 DUIs. You know, we had that woman from Colorado who lost her son to an illegal DUI. DUI is a terrible thing as it is. The harm, the mayhem that car accidents cause. 80,000, all avoidable. People should have never been here. We could get rid of them tomorrow. These are the ones ice caught. Not that exist, that ICE managed to catch in a single year. And every year, the statistics are roughly the same. If you watch the last five years of ICE annual reports, 500 or so thousand, 80,000, they're roughly the same every year. So this is every additional year. Now, some there's overlap because it's, you know, they, they re enter, they come back and commit more crimes, you know, so they're not necessarily 100% different people. There's some overlap, but to give you a sense, of how much on a federal level and even a state level to a certain extent, especially in many states, is the is the illegal alien crime problem, DUIs, 76,585 dangerous drug offenses, 76,000. There's your drug crisis. 76,000 other traffic offenses, 63,000 immigration offenses. Those are a lot of re-entries. 50,000 assaults. Wow. 20,000 larcenies. 12,000 burglaries. 11,000 weapons offenses. If you add up um, two categories of sex assaults plus... What is this? Plus sex offenses... It's roughly 13,000. One year, one year, one year. 5,562 robberies. 2,085 kidnappings. That, by the way, is a major percentage. Most most kidnappings are from illegals. And 2,028 homicides. And by the way, the 500 whatever thousand I had, 542,000, those are only counting criminal offenses where there's at least a thousand of them. Number. So all the ones less, so it's it's more it's more than that. It's likely, you know, 
10,000 more than that, but whatever. 2,028 homicide charges. Did you know, did you know that there are, in, in 2017, there were 11,883 people arrested for murder, murder offenders in the system. That means that illegals who comprise 3.5% of the population committed 17% of the murders. Now, you might tell me ICE is capturing people in one year, but these are people that didn't necessarily commit them just in this year. So it's of the broader universe of previous years. But again, this is every year they keep arresting new people. So it's garbage in, garbage out. It might not be that strong, but it's pretty bad. Now, consider the fact, folks, that this is very important. These are the people that ICE gets. What are the people they don't get? How do I know there's more people? Even though Trump, because of thanks to Jeff Sessions, increased ICE detainers and apprehensions from 2016 to 2017 and now from 2017 to 2018. It's still only up to 158,000. Now it's up from like the nadir of like 108,000 in 2016. That was the final year of Obama when he completely was done emasculating our law enforcement. But before Obama did what he did, before he suspended 287G, secure communities, all this stuff, DACA, Do you know that in 2010, there were roughly 330,000 ICE apprehensions? So there's a lot more, and, and, and now we have a bigger surge. So you would expect you should catch a lot more. So we know there's more out there. Now, it's not ICE's fault. It's the rise of sanctuary cities. Remember, before Obama suspended immigration enforcement at a federal level, and before you had sanctuaries at a state level, that's what you were able to achieve. Now, when Trump is finally reinstating federal enforcement, but now you have the sanctuary policies. And you have to remember that among the sanctuaries, where's the statistic I have here? I'm just trying to find it for you. Most illegals by definition live in sanctuary cities. Again, it's a push and a pull. They're attracted to sanctuary cities, obviously, and then once they're there, they basically take over the politics and they, you know, determine the demographics and everything. And then the, you know, they'll become even more favorable towards them. So you have to understand that the biggest places, like in California, you look at the numbers, California is in the toilet. California alone, like if you would have all of the offenses from there, they don't have them because they don't have access to a lot of them. California is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Six out of 10 illegals, six out of 10 illegals live in 20 metro areas. Okay, they're mainly, you know, mainly 20 metro areas. Places like New York, Chicago, LA, Houston, Newark, those type of places. Almost every one of them are sanctuaries. 
Now, let's just allow for a minute that most murderers, they get. That that much, a criminal alien murderer, they're not going to hide, although there's evidence they are, but most of them, they're not. But could you imagine the DUIs and drug charges? It, what the actual number of, of criminal alien drug offenses and DUIs and assaults for that matter? Because the numbers we have are the ones ICE was able to get their hands on. But most of them live in sanctuary cities. And I've been told by ICE, for example, in Boston, that the courts are, are they're, they're harboring MS-13. They're not letting them get a hold of any of these people. And yet the numbers are that high. This is the emergency we should all unite behind. This is the drug crisis. I'm going to have charts showing how from 2011 to 2016, ICE detainers plummeted. Immigration judge, the number of immigration judge um, stays on deportation skyrocketed. And the number of deportation orders by immigration judges plummeted. You could track it on a graph with the drug crisis. Because those are all your people. Most people to begin with that get in the system are criminal aliens. The overwhelming number of non-criminal aliens get, a, get away. They never wind up getting apprehended. They don't go after them. And which are the ones that they let go? The ones they consider low-level, which are drug traffickers. You see, they consider them low-level. Heritage Action considers them low-level. So certainly these Soros judges and sanctuary city politicians consider them low-level. And again, you could tra- track it on a graph, the severity of the decline in the worst drug states and the worst sanctuaries, the, su- the decline in ICE detainers and deportation orders by immigration judges is more severe than the national average in states like New Jersey and Massachusetts. As opposed to like a state like Texas, um, you didn't really see that. So Heritage Action has nothing to say on this. Nothing to say. We should be having a national fight over this shutdown. Every one of these crimes is avoidable. And yet they saturate the system. And this gets back to jailbreak, that the entire issue is a goddamn lie, especially on a federal level. Forty In, in fiscal year 2017, 40.7% of all federal offenders were foreign nationals. of all drug traffickers in the federal system, offenders in the system, were Hispanic. So that tells you that a lot of even Hispanic citizens, but the fact that they're Hispanic, it means that it's obviously, again, at a primary level driven by these transnational cartels. All avoidable. Yet... We're not going to focus on this. We're going to focus on uniting the entire capital of this phony comatose movement behind leniencies, less deterrent, lighter sentences for these very people. It's it's truly shocking. It's truly shocking. You, you just and by the way, you just look at the numbers. You just look at the numbers. The number of deportation orders by immigration judges nationwide plummeted by 44% from 2011 to 
from 2011 to 2016, while the number of reprieves from deportation surged 51% over the same period. It's from my notes here. In Massachusetts, Massachusetts, the number of um, reprieves from, uh, I'm sorry, the number of deportations order, or I'm sorry, the number of, of reprieves from deportation, it grew by 116% in Massachusetts. That is why Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Maine, so many you know, middle-class families, they saw their kids die in the thousands from 2012 or so, 2013, started, accelerated, 14 and 15. And indeed, it's very interesting. It's kind of plateaued now that you see Despite the sanctuary cities, the number, the trajectory is the other way, at least at a federal level. Sessions went after those immigration judges, and now they're deporting more people. A legacy of Jeff Sessions that just wasn't appreciated by this president or the sickening, phony, retarded movement that spat on him. Just to sum this all up. Just to sum this all up in a closing argument. A conservative approach to criminal justice is rooted in something very simple. It's balance. It's downgrading the nebulous over criminalized regulatory crimes while getting tougher on those who harm other people and fuel the violence in our major cities. Unfortunately, far from applying only to low-level, nonviolent, first-time offenders, as proponents suggest, although I guess they no longer do, this First Step Act offers front-end and back-end leniencies in sentencing for the most hardened criminals. These are people who graduated from the state to the federal system and can serve at least one-third of their sentence in home confinement, or full release into parole. Roughly 4,000 felons, including those with extensive records of violence and gang membership, will be eligible for immediate release under retroactivity. Between front-end and back-end sentencing cuts, many repeat drug offender traffickers will see their sentences cut in half. And um, by the way, let me, let me explain to you. At a time of the worst drug crisis in history, every repeat drug trafficker, including high-level cartel officials who are now subject to the mandatory minimums, will benefit from reduced mandatory sentencing going forward. Irrespective of how much, as long as it's over the mandatories, irrespective of their prior criminal history or drug type. So that there's no exceptions to on the front end whatsoever. The entire premise of this bill is built upon an erroneous assumption that belies the nature of what the federal prison population is as distinct from the state system. It is built upon a philosophy that incarceration is the problem, not crime, and that somehow if we focused on this utopian rehabilitation rather than deterrent, we'd eliminate violent crime. There's nothing new. There's nothing innovative and there's nothing reform-minded about this mindset. It's the air 
to, and indeed the leftovers of, the McGovern-Dukakis philosophy, now championed by Van Jones, Kim Kardashian, and Al Sharpton, which Reagan fought so hard to stop. The concept of criminal justice reform was originally pushed by President Reagan as an agenda to be tougher on crime, particularly gangbangers and drug traffickers who are responsible for the lion's share of other violent crime in this country. In the 60s, liberal judges, who would appear conservative compared to today's judges, were turning our justice system into a revolving door of catch and release. There was no deterrent. But through the mandatory sentencing and the tough-on-crime culture Reagan catalyzed, we began to actualize a miraculous drop in crime beginning in the the 90s. I remember like it's today. And it eventually led to a 70% decline in the murder rate and as well as other similar categories. Particularly the worst violent criminals who often escape justice on the other criminal accounts because we have a namby-pamby system that needs reform the other way the drug sentencing managed to take them off the streets without having to reform those other elements. This movement has been hijacked by the left and the phony right, which is the left, which has spent the past decade reversing these gains already while convincing conservatives that jailbreak will save money. Ironically, it won't save money. The cost to crime is in the billions Unpaid for. Just terrible. Again, I think of my friend who had his, doesn't have a lot of money, had to pay for his daughter's wedding. His van was totaled by a juvenile that had five felony convictions and was never incarcerated. And maybe we'll get $500 for it, but it worked well for him. You know, it wasn't junk to him. Now he has to buy a $30,000 replacement. Who pays for that? Where's the balance? Where's the concern for the victim? And then the whole thing, the whole thing foundationally is a lie. To begin with, the federal prison population is only about 10% of the incarcerated, incarcerated population. On average, the most dangerous criminals, particularly the ones serving for drug trafficking. The federal prison population has already shrunk by 18% over the last decade. And with the growing population, the percentage of adults in the U.S. correction system is lower than at any time since 1993 now, without any changes. The pendulum of incarceration and tougher sentencing, particularly on drug trafficking, has already swung back in the lenient direction. The U.S. Sentencing Commission released 46,000 federal prisoners over the course of a decade, and the Obama administration commuted the sentencing of roughly 2,000 drug traffickers, many of whom used guns and violence in their trade. The average sentence of drug traffickers in 2016 was already 19% lower than in 2009. Nobody is serving in federal prison for simple drug possession. These are the worst of the worst who are responsible for the drug crisis, work with transnational cartels and gangs, And they're already being released or having reduced sentencing even before the new law. In fiscal year 2015, 62.4% of all drug traffickers sentenced received a sentence below that recommended in the sentencing guidelines. 
In FY 2016, only 44.5% of all drug traffickers were convicted of an offense carrying a mandatory minimum, the lowest proportion since 1993. This entire thing, it's not just wrong, it's too late. It's, it's made up. Hey, you're 15 years too late, buddy. As such, those remaining in federal prison today are the ones that even Obama and Sally Yates declined to release. And most certainly the new ones entering the system serving long sentences now are among the worst gang members. Again, very often working with Jalisco, Sinaloa, killing tens of thousands of people with the deadliest drugs as well as fueling street violence in cities like Chicago, New Orleans, Kansas City, and Baltimore. The fact that they're in the federal system demonstrates they have significant criminal records in the state system and most often plead down from the original charges. According to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, 72.8% of those convicted in federal prison in 2016 had prior convictions. 72.8% of them, with the average number of among those who had the convictions, prior ones, being 6.1 prior offenses. Yet these are the people who will benefit from the leniencies, and frankly, most of them, even under Cotton's bill, remember Cotton's amendment. Not that Cotton believes in it, but at least the amendment he's trying to do. Because remember, the exceptions are only if you're in there now for those crimes. But like, let's say you serve time in the state system for murder, rape, sexual assault, child porn, you name it. And then now you're in there for drugs, which again, drugs is the trade of Satan. All the evil people engage in it. So a lot of, a lot of, um, by definition, a lot of these people are the ones that were doing other things. That's the beauty of the drug laws. Whether you're a hawk or dove on drugs in themselves, it was a honeypot to catch the other guys, which is why I always say we actualized that drop in, cl- in, in crime. Now, there are other things, such as more aggressive police tactics, more more proactive police tactics, but this movement opposes that as well. They oppose bail requirements. Everything they oppose. Even those designated. So so here's the punchline. Proponents of the bill say that convicts must participate in recidivism reduction programs in order to obtain early release. But these programs are mythical, undefined, and contain no required benchmarks to trigger such eligibility. In fact, we know what they are. They're harmful programs promoted by harmful organizations. Even those designated as high risk are eligible for early release, at least into home confinement. Originally, it was parole as well. They changed that, but it's still home confinement. There are, there are already numerous programs that either are mandatory or have high rates of participation, yet nothing in this bill ensures that those prisoners have to engage in anything more substantial, much less proven activities that actually reform them as, as human beings. It's incontrovertibly clear that this bill releases many hardened criminals early, but leaves us to rely on some magical programs that will reform them when specified with no greater degree of clarity other than, quote, productive activities. 
Supporters of the bill agree that these prisoners are very prone to recidivism. Indeed, that is their stated impetus in pushing this bill. According to BJS, states that have experimented with these very same programs and had all this early release, we've had it for a decade already. There's nothing new here. What are the results? 68% of those released under these state programs were rearrested within three years, 79% within six years, 83% within nine years, 77% of drug offenders were arrested for non-drug crimes within nine years, with 34% arrested for a violent crime. Thus, if there is a certitude that this bill releases tens of thousands of violent and dangerous criminals, at least 53,000, and they recidivated appallingly high rates with similar jailbreak programs, why would any sane moral person with a modicum of regard for public safety rely on undefined programs run by left-wing harmful groups to change this trajectory? There's endless flaws with this bill that are too numerous to enumerate. Obviously, as I mentioned, a good number of federal drug traffickers are criminal aliens. This releases them into home confinement or parole in the last third of their sentence without mandating they be turned over to ICE. You'll never hear from them again. They're a flight risk. Next thing. Next thing. The bill requires DOJ to assess all 180,000 federal inmates every single year within 180 days. It is literally the fraternal order of police before they were bought off called it unworkable, and this provision is still there. Why wouldn't you simply target the specific categories of convicts that you want assessed? These are even people on death row, even criminal aliens. They're never going to be a part of society. You're deporting them, unless you tell me you don't want to deport them. Next. While the standards of eligibility for release and access to programs cast a wide net and are ill-defined, the standard for DOJ or prison officials to deny the leniencies are very purposely tight and defined with rigid legal standard. If a prison warden wants to place a hold on the release of an inmate into supervised release, he must show, quote, by clear and convincing evidence that the prisoner should not be transferred into pre-release custody. They use the legal legal standard of clear and convincing evidence in addition to prohibiting BOP officials from using the nature of the conviction or past behavior to make that assessment. In other words, almost anyone will be able to litigate their way into early release. But there's no onus placed on them to show any benchmark of reforms, what type of courses, just productive activities run by Cornell University. There's another provision. Currently, prisoners receive 54 days of good behavior credits per time served, right? You know that, that, you know, um, if you serve, let's say 20, you, you get sentenced to 20 years. Now, there's a whole nother program where you get a year off RDAP, it's called. Um, but on top of that, you get, 54 days of good behavior credits per year's served. So 20 years, you do the math, times 50 days. 
you know, that's 54 days, that's over a thousand days, right? So you, that's how you get time off, right? That's how you get, let's say three extra years plus RDAP. So usually, you know, you'll wind up 20 year sentence will be 16 years. This bill allows all criminals to earn 54 days prorated, even for the years they don't serve, which under this bill will be fewer, fewer years for most prisoners, thereby allowing them to double dip. Meaning they're sentenced to one thing, but they get early release a third of the way, but the 54 days goes prorated off the years they never serve. So, like, well, let let me just continue. The bill also requires that BOP establish, quote, a procedure to restore time credits that a prisoner lost as a result of a rule violation. Now the onus is on law enforcement to restore lost credits due to bad behavior, not upon the criminal to actually earn them. No exceptions are made to this provision, by the way. Unlike, see, this is the, I, I haven't talked about this a lot, but these good credits that they expand, aside from the time credits, they're totally free. And there's no exceptions to them. Everyone gets them. And even if you demonstrate that you're bad, you could have a prison, you could cause a prison riot. And as long as then you start behaving afterwards, they have to restore it to you and they have to restore it. So again, let's say um, you know, you get an extra five years off. You get 54 days for those five years that you're not serving. So jailbreak begets jailbreak. So you almost get another year off built into it. You're not gonna hear this anywhere else. The much Forgotten sentencing reduction portion of the bill expands the safety valve, which was designed to allow first-time offenders to escape the mandatories. They expanded to repeat offenders, a number of career drug traffickers, and other people serving time for assault in the state system will now be eligible to avoid the minimums altogether when convicted on drug trafficking charges. Because they're not going to necessarily have four criminal points, which is the cutoff in this bill. Next, as a means of better fostering reintegration, the bill mandates that BOP place convicts in institutions within 500 miles of their homes. Once again, this bill makes no exception for violent drug traffickers or even murderers and gangbangers. Most gun and drug traffickers in federal prison are gangbangers. So often when feds bust up gangs, you'll see they'll, well, they'll convict like 30 people at a time because they're busting up a gang. They need to disperse the leaders so that they're not together in the same institution or close to their base of operations. Yet this bill forces the transfer of existing gang members to new facilities in what is an unworkable security nightmare. Next, the bill places numerous mandates on prison wardens to allow more phone time recreation time, internet time, without appropriating more funding and resources to law enforcement. This places wardens in danger because they lack the resources to monitor these activities, which is why the prison wardens union opposes the bill. Also endangers public safety, safety because as the National Sheriff's Association observed, quote, a significant level of crime is orchestrated and directed by the inmates from within the federal facilities using phones. That's under current timing. Someone did it for me. They they multiplied the number of minutes by prisoners. It would come out to an insane number of prison wardens. You would need to monitor it. And again, the drug traffickers in particular, 
gang bang, gang bangers are the ones that do their hits. I could go on and on and on. You know, I, I'm running out of a voice, so I can't talk anymore. But this bill places numerous mandates on how local sheriffs have to restrain and um, inca- and uh, apprehend juveniles. Remember, a lot of them are violent. A lot of them now are criminal aliens. This is the one part of the bill that actually affects its direct mandate on local law enforcement. A lot of sheriffs are very worried. They don't even have the resources to fulfill the mandates of this bill. We live in times of great confusion, folks, where people have forgotten what it means to be a conservative and where politicians have become ignorant of basic facts of life and where there's no regard a balance of equities equities for victims, for law enforcement. There are so many things we need to do. We need to get tough on sanctuary cities, on criminal aliens. We need to deport more people. We need to fix these broken court cases that are letting out violent criminals, citizen and alien. We need to work on all the loopholes that allow defense attorneys to get off the most violent people from sentencing when they deserve it. Just in one year in 2017, 6,013 murder cases, 79,310 rape cases, 206,091 robbery cases, and 349,190 aggravated assault cases went uncleared, according to the FBI. Where's the justice for those victims? Where is the effort to go case by case like you're going prisoner by prisoner to worry about their emotions rather than the prisoner's emotions? And those are four violent criminal um, categories without even mentioning drug trafficking that they think is low level. Then again, then again, They already admitted that this is not about low-level violent offenders, even their convoluted view of it. They fundamentally don't believe in prison, deterrent, punishment, and law and order. The malfeasance shows in the text of the bill because law enforcement prosecutors and victim rights group had no input and were regarded as an afterthought in the face of political pressure groups, special interests, Hollywood donors, and Kim Kardashian's fat rear end. Dead victims and law enforcement officers don't write campaign checks the same way special interests do, folks. And that is just how it is. We'll keep you updated. Sorry for the morbidity here, but that's my closing argument. You got to hear the truth. May God continue to bless us, and may God give us guidance in this time of murkiness. 